Hey everyone, welcome to the Industry Show. I'm your host, Nitin Bajaj, and joining me today is Veena Jetty. Veena, welcome on the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for the show. Pleasure is all ours. We are excited to have you. So let's start with who is Veena? Yeah, so uh, who am I? That's like a very broad question. Um, so I am a mom first. Um, I'm a wife. I am also an entrepreneur. So I own a company which acquires and operates large multifamily assets, class B assets in our target markets. I currently have about half a billion in my portfolio across Texas, Florida, and Georgia. Um, and I think of myself too as an unofficial unofficial craft beer fan <laughs> um and i also you know i have a lot of close friends and family so i'm you know a cousin a sister a wife a friend so that's who vino jetty is <laughs> so you wear multiple hats and then you deal with some change a few Hundred million, billion here and there. <laughs> okay, that's that gives me the gist. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's the. I think that might be the least glamorous part of my life, though. <laughs> well, I'll ignore that comment for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, tell us a little more about Vive Funds. Yeah, so Vive was really born to be a vehicle for high net worth passive investors who wanted to invest in real estate, but maybe didn't have $80 million to invest. Um, and so it was really important for me. So I'm married to a physician and it was really important to me that families like ours that maybe had high incomes or did well, uh, were able to invest into the real estate assets that the wealthy elite in this country had access to. And so rather than, you know, expecting anybody to save up $80 million, uh, what we really have done is we've created a system or I guess an investment um, opportunity that would allow investors to pool their money together. So now, you know, like 50,000, 100,000, 200,000, those are much more palatable sums for our investors. And then they can invest into multiple assets so they get the benefit of diversification across their portfolio as well. Um, and so VI funds, we really have a very laser focus on what we do. Um, we target specifically class B value-add assets. Um, we just released a uh, value add equity fund that's a $100 million fund um, that our investors have really liked it and really was a response to the demand we had from our investors. So our focus is always, aside from operating and owning great assets, is always on our LP investors. And I think that that's one of the things that makes us who we are is that we have a laser focus on our investors. That's awesome. So yeah, you, you do have a, a deep focus. You mentioned three states, class B assets. On, the, on your customer side, who is how do you define an ideal customer for Vive? Yeah, so we actually have a wide variety of clients um, and clients are really our passive investors. And so really the people that seek us out or look to work with us are people that want that middle of the road conservative multifamily or real estate investment to add to their portfolio. Um, they're usually high income earners. About 70% of our investors are physicians. The other 30% are comprised of you know, engineers, lawyers, 
business owners, other real estate investors who want to diversify their funds. Um, and so we, we have a healthy mix, but I'd say overwhelmingly, we have a lot of physician families. Um, and that's more, I think, from a referral source than anything else. So one person invests and then they tell you know their partners at their practice or their friends and family. And so that's how it actually ended up being so weighted toward physicians, but it's generally speaking, it's the high net worth individual that wants to diversify into real estate. They want the tax advantages of being invested into real estate and they want the cash flow and IRRs that real estate can produce. That's awesome. And if you can give us a sense for, you know, what's the scope and size, you mentioned you're heavily focused on these three states, Mm -hmm. but within that, what kind of, uh, what does your portfolio look like, if you would? Yeah, so our focus today is actually a little bit different than it was even a few years ago. So today we really are targeting, we actually have more target states than the three that we're in. Um, We're also targeting North Carolina, South Carolina, Arizona, and then of course, Texas, Florida, and Georgia. We just happen to be in those three states as of now. And so our typical portfolio acquisition would be, we look at anything that's 200 units and above, um, preferably closer to that three to 500 range is ideal, but we'll look at 200 units and above. Um, We also are looking for like 70 to be on the very low end, but really we're targeting in that 100 million, $150 million range. Um, The assets we look for to add to our portfolio, they have to be very strong assets in great markets. Um, So we look for something that will still perform well through a pullback or a slowdown in the market. Right now, everything's on fire. So we're looking in those markets that have solid uh, fundamentals, that have a lot of job growth, that have been stable through COVID. Um, Those are all things that we take into account when we underwrite them. So, And then we also look for something that has a value-add component. So we want to be able to go in and we want to renovate and we want to be able to move the income of the asset by increasing rents. So that's our general business plan on anything we go after. And the vintage or the year of construction is usually 1980s is like the older end, but really we're looking at 1990s and newer at this point. Interesting. You you started to mention about one of the challenges. I'm curious to hear what's the biggest challenge you're facing as you're looking for assets and growing your portfolio. Oh, hands down right now, it's finding assets at work for our investment criteria. Um, everyone asks me like, oh, is it really hard to find capital? No, that's absolutely the least of my problems. I have more capital than I can deploy. I, we have a very solid base of investors. In fact, a lot of times new investors can't even get into our projects because we go to a waiting list so quickly. There's so much demand. The challenge is, and the reason that we have that good problem to have is because of the assets that we do put our name on. Um, we're not going to tweak our underwriting or our fundamentals just to make the asset or the deal work. Um, We're very sensitive to the process and remaining conservative in our inputs so that we get conservative outputs. By by nature, what ends up happening is, is our return projections come in lower than where we actually could perform or where we oftentimes are performing, or it also produces lower projections to investors because I want to set the expectation. I want to under promise and then over deliver. Um, but yeah, finding a deal is absolutely the most challenging. I mean, I have never seen anything like this ever. This market is next level uh, in terms of its competitiveness. And it's not just, ter- uh, not just price we're competing on, it's terms too. And I think it's very interesting that this challenge is not just happening at the 
the single family individual buyer level, but it's across the board. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's very few asset classes right now that I think you're not competing against multiple people, even at the size of deals we're competing at. Most people think like, oh, okay, when you're betting on a $100 million deal, you're like one of maybe a handful of offers. We're one of like 30. Wow. There's a lot of capital right now. Yeah, I don't know if that's a good problem to have. <laughs> no, I, I, I would much rather be competing against only a couple of other investors. But I think too, what that means is we are seeing the strength in and confidence in multifamily the way that we we see it we're getting market reassurance from that as well mm-hmm. on the flip side what's the biggest opportunity you're targeting oh um well I, from an asset perspective mm-hmm. we are currently in process of underwriting or making offers on 35 different assets so um that is our opportunities exist preliminarily, but that doesn't really mean anything because basically I can get into a best and final round, we can go through everything and then lose the deal last minute. Um, I think the opportunity is really to get into this market as we're seeing prices continue to climb. If I had a crystal ball, I wish I would have invested like two years ago, I would have bought everything that I thought was ridiculous and overpriced because I would have made a killing. Uh, But you know, it's easy to invest in hindsight. And our, the fundamentals of how we underwrite and how we look at deals has significantly changed and I think gotten better in the last even 12, 18 months since COVID is now a known, you know, a known factor and it's a known variable that we can take into account when we enter assets now. And I think that's a big opportunity for us. As you look back in, you know, across your investment uh, and portfolio, mm-hmm. is there a lesson learned or a success story or even both uh, that you're really proud of and would like to share with us? Oh, gosh. Well, as far as lessons learned, I don't know that we have enough time to go through <laughs> all of the lessons learned. Uh, literally every single time I do a deal, I learn something new and a way that I could do things better. Um, I think our most recent closing is probably something I'm the most proud of. Um, so we closed on a deal in um, at the Atlanta MSA. Mm-hmm. It was a $78.3 million purchase. And we won that deal because we were able to close it in 42 days. Wow. Um, we put out an offering for $26 million to our investors. And I didn't know how long it would take. I was like, okay, it'll probably take about two weeks for us to get fully funded on, or sorry, uh, two, a month to get fully funded on that. We ended up funding that in 13 days. We were overcommitted. And I, I felt bad because I gave some of my investors guidance. I'm like, ah, usually a raise of this size in the summer, especially, it's probably going to be like a month or so before we're like actually fully committed. No, we were overcommitted by several million within 13 days. And so I was blown away by it. It it really means something to me that our investors trust us and they want to continue partnering with us. Um, I look at our repeat investment rate as a very important KPI for my business because I want, I, I know you might give me your money once, but when you come back to me again, that means a whole lot more to me than the first time you put that money in. Um, and so I have a, about an 80% re, 
rate of my investors being in two or more projects with us. And so that's something I aim to keep as high as possible. Um, and, but I think that that was something that was, it was nerve wracking initially because we put, we put in our offer, the terms we want on were that we would have 21 days for due diligence and 21 days for financing. Standard terms are 30 and 30 with maybe another 30 day extension. So usually about 60 to 90 days. We said, okay, we'll do 21 and 21, no extensions. This is a lot to get through. Um, we, you know, we've gotten a lot better on automating our processes and getting some of the friction down, but it was definitely nerve wracking because if we didn't close, we'd be in default. We would have owed, or we would have lost millions of dollars. Um, and then through due diligence, and this often happens to us because of how we underwrite, um, as we get better and better numbers, and as we continue seeing the intimate operations during the close period, our, our underwriting, our updated underwriting actually improves. And so we underwrote for minimal rent increases. And since closing in the last three months, we've been able to push it by like 29%, which is wow. insane. Um, but we, I can't underwrite to 29% because it's really not realistic. So I think just things like that for us, like that was a very big win. It's something we we're proud of. Um, assets obviously doing really well. And, um, you know, we're just, we're able to continue operating it in a way that puts us in a really good position for our investors. Congratulations. Those are phenomenal mm -hmm. numbers. That's an amazing achievement. Thank and you. you mentioned repeat investors. You know, that's mm -hmm. something that struck me even when you started talking about the demographics of your investors, the word of mouth and having 70% yeah. positions in your portfolio. That speaks a lot. So, congratulations. Thank you. Yes, that's, that is something I'm very sensitive to is the reinvestment rate with our investors. When I write our investors back a big check and I'm like, here, here's all your money back. And then all of your additional returns from the exit, I turn around and ask them for that money back because I want them to keep investing with me. And most of the time, if you deliver, they will, and they'll increase their investments. That's a great place to be in. I mean, of course, yeah. it comes with a lot of pressure to perform. Yeah. <laughs> You're obviously good at it and that keeps well, you thriving you. and growing. Thank you. That's awesome. You know, let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little more about you and, and your thought processes. And, you know, we obviously do this as a series of one-line life lessons. Mm -hmm. So I'd invite you to share a few of those with us. Yeah, I and I have like so many of these because <laughs> I'm someone that really likes those like one-line quotes and I use a lot of them often. And so um, for passive investors, especially, I always get a question about, oh, you, you know, I, I haven't started. I'm so far behind. And there's this proverb, right? The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Yes. And the second best time is now. And I really love that. And it's applicable in multiple ways, but I think that especially for investors that is something whether you're active passive whatever if you missed the boom on the last cycle don't miss the next one um you know and i think that that is really important um do you want me to go to the next one-liner sure okay so the second one-liner that i really like is about entrepreneurship because <laughs> obviously i work for myself um and it's an entrepreneur will work a hundred hours a week to avoid working 40 hours a week yes. for somebody else. <laughs> and I find that to be very much true. Uh, I was in corporate America 
many years ago. And ever since I left, I just can't imagine going back to work for somebody else because putting in 40 hours to build somebody else's dream is not what I'm interested in doing. I want to leave a legacy for my girls. Um, and so that's really why I do what I do. And by the way, I wonder how many of these have been used by people you've interviewed already, because I feel like these are pretty common for a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, and then the third one that I would say is, um, I, I don't, well, and this isn't necessarily a, a quote or a proverb, but it's a life lesson that is, has been really fundamental to me getting to the level of success that I have been able to achieve thus far um, is I don't like the word can't. Like, I don't want someone to tell me why we can't do something or what we can't do. I want you to tell me how we can do it. And I implement this in my business as well. So when I have somebody that approaches me with a problem, I don't want them to just approach me with a problem. I also want them to approach me with solutions. And I do this with our attorney too. And I, you know, poor guy, I'm sure he like hates that I do this, but he's always like, no, we can't do that because lawyers are meant to like, make sure you're totally protected and every scenario is planned for. And our attorney is especially conservative. And I'm like, I don't want to hear why I can't do this. Tell me how I can. And so it oftentimes our conversation will be like, no, you can't do this. Okay, well, what about this? No, you can't do that either. Okay, well, what about this? No, you can't do that either. And so it's oftentimes like a negotiation till we find something that we can do. And so I always like to find, um, I always like to find those solutions through more creative thinking. And I think in entrepreneurship in general, a lot of problems are solved by creatively thinking. Um, the yeah. fourth one. Sorry, okay, I just wanted to make a comment there. Yeah. I came to realize this, you know, th that, through that process, the best people that can come up with the solution are the people that come up with the problem, right? Because oh, they've yes. done a lot of work on that. So if we can get them to turn around and start thinking about the solution, yep. they can be the, the best partners for us. Yep. No, that's absolutely true because they also understand why it's a problem yes. to begin with. So they know what, like, if you can wave a magic wand, how mm -hmm. do you fix it? And it's actually been really crucial to being able to structure our deals in such a way that it works for everybody. Cause that's a lot of what I do. Um, and I actually love the structure side of what I do specifically. So it's not necessarily finding out what is not allowed. It's what can we do that still works for everybody? It's a win-win. And so, okay, the next one, this is actually one I just heard today. So this was not on my list before today, but um, someone who's a good friend of mine, also in the multifamily space, I was talking to him and he said a sentence which really made sense to me, which was creativity is found in the level of commitment. And I was like, what do you, what do you mean by that? And he's like, well, if you're not that committed to what you're doing, you're going to find the problem. Yes. But if you're committed and your back is against the wall, you're going to figure out how to get out of it. And it was like light bulb moment, you know, like, Ooh, and I was like, that's so true. Because how many times have you started something where you're like one foot in and then you're like, eh, okay, it's like, this is a problem and you just let it completely stop. Mm -hmm. Whereas in my business, I love what I do. I'm fully hundred percent in on it. Right. And so 
every time an issue arises, I figure out how to solve it because I'm committed to it. And so I think that that was, I've never heard that before. And I thought it was really powerful. Um, and then the other one I really like too, and this is more of like a perseverance or, you know, work ethic one, um, is if you can't afford a seat at the table, serve water till you can, so you can be in the room, right? Because you need to be in proximity, right? Exactly. So if you can't afford a seat at the table, serve water to be in the room. And it means being in proximity with the people that you are in proximity to, your network is really your net worth. Maybe that's like a bonus one, number six, the bonus. Um, and it, it's true. It's because you will have access to conversations, to thought processes, to mindset changes, to their networks that you wouldn't otherwise have access to. I mean, even you and I were introduced through somebody who is a very good friend of both of ours um, and who's been a guest on the show as well. And that that right there is like a perfect example of it's about the people that you're at a table with. And that to me really resonated. I think the bonus is my favorite. So <laughs> the network is a network. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's true because that's who you can turn to. That's who you can ask for advice. I mean, without having the network that I have, I don't think I could be successful in any area of business. Love these. Thank so. you, Rina, so much for taking the time. I know you have a lot going on. You said 35 properties that are that are being actively pursued various stages yeah I, it sounds more impressive than it actually is because by the end of it probably like none of them will actually end up under contract but i'll be glad if even one comes out but then i think that even gives you the you know how much work goes into this oh, this yeah. is not easy even with oh yeah you know a eight nine figure you know check that you can dispose it's not like oh, yeah. it's you know a guarantee of any sort so no that just even you know <laughs> increases my respect for oh, the you. work you do in thank addition you. to you know you've broken a lot of barriers and ceilings in being in a space which is fairly dominated in multiple demographics and you've cut right across through and mm -hmm. achieved so much success so again congratulations to you thank you i really appreciate it Thanks for being with us. We really appreciate it and would love to keep this conversation going and bring you back on when I would think maybe all 35 of those properties have come. <laughs> you know, to your point, we underwrite about, we look at maybe about 400 deals before one comes through. Wow. Gives you any idea of how many we look at. But, you know, that's where I think too, there's a key differentiator is a lot of people can make some of these work if they just adjust these numbers here and there, or they are underwrite it more aggressively. But for me, it's being able to put my brand on it means also going into it, knowing that we've done everything we could to mitigate risk for our investors. And so that's, you know, it's like the double-edged sword. <laughs> yeah, you have to find the balance between how aggressive you want to be with making sure the investors are going to keep coming back. Exactly. Veena, thanks again. It's been an absolute pleasure. We really appreciate being here. Thank you so much for having me.